I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, you know, the problem is you don't have fathers. They're in fucking jail. Like, you can't have it both ways. Welcome to Manic Rambling Spiral. I am Heather B. Armstrong. And I am John R. Bray. This week, we are joined by a policy wonk. <laughs> we love policy wonks on Manic Ramblings. Somebody complained that we were featuring too many policy wonks. Because we had the audacity to talk about parental leave. So our guest this week is Kelly Wickham Hurst, a very good friend of mine. Kelly has worked in education and is currently running a nonprofit called Being Black at School. And I wanted to bring her on, especially this week, considering everything that is going on, especially with school shootings, with what's happening in Louisiana. There's a huge list of issues that Kelly has a lot of insight and expertise into. Kelly, do you want to talk a little bit about what you bring to the table? I'm a troublemaker. I like <laughs> to start with that, uh, which really means that any industry in which I've worked, I've been a troublemaker. Mm -hmm. And it's because I think I like that you even called me a policy wonk. I'm like, do I know policy? I know, I know some policy, right? I get policy. Um, or I think I know politics because it, to be a person in this country and to live in the margins, you have to understand politics. Politics matters in your life very much. So when people tell me that they don't get into politics, I just think that must be really nice for you that nothing about policy has affected you in such a way that you think it's important to be involved. Right. How lucky, how privileged of you. So uh, um, I was a troublemaker in the classroom when I was a teacher. I taught sixth through 12th grade uh, at various schools. And I kept seeing really terrible instances of institutional racism, but I did not have that language for it at the time. And then I thought, I know, I will fix this by becoming an administrator. And that was the dumbest thing I could have done. Because you don't fix it as an administrator, you just are now in charge of metting out the discipline um, and the consequences for the things that you had already seen in the first place. Mm -hmm. So I found myself in this position where I was like, oh, man, it's the whole system. The whole damn system is rigged. And it's not if you are a white middle class um, child in this country, you can navigate the system really well. And no one else has it that easy. So uh, as an administrator, I kept seeing instances of really blatant racism um, coming from other educators, coming from my colleagues at the administrative level. And I kept trying to point it out, and then everybody kept calling me a troublemaker. So I was like, fine, fuck it. Then I'm going to be a big old troublemaker. <laughs> um, it didn't. That doesn't turn out well for me, by the way. <laughs> the end of this story is that um, I just kept getting moved from school to school, and um, I was not going along with status quo and whatever policies we kept putting in place. Um, the devil is in the details when it comes to institutional racism, and the details are policy. So 
In that instance, Heather, yeah, I'm a policy wonk. <laughs> you're, you're still blogging, aren't you? Yes, I am. Yeah. And when did you start your website? Um, I started about 12, 12 years ago, right? When we 12. met. Our, I was just thinking our relationship is almost a teenager, Heather. <laughs> um, <laughs> did you start as a as a mommy blogger? I did, but I didn't like I didn't think of it that way because my children were older than most of the other mommy bloggers. So yeah, like I'm I'm a grandmother now, and so I was talking about my teenagers at the time and what was going on, and the mommy blogging set was still talking about what diapers to choose and how what is co sleeping, and I'm like that I that is not my issue. I'm not talking about that. <laughs> Which, of course, you know, as Heather knows, that spiraled really into me talking about why I was the age I was talking about teenagers because I was a teen mom. Mm-hmm. And so then it then I started talking about what shaped me and formed me as a teen parent and what policies and what things in my life um, had been difficult from that. And then that's that kind of naturally followed into let's also talk about other things like why it's also hard to be me because I'm a black woman in a society that doesn't really want to hear my voice. So I never really identified with it because of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I never considered you like a mommy blogger. I, I, (laughs) this is a lot about me. I considered you a writer. (laughs) Mm. I considered you a, a very intellectual writer is what I have always, have always considered you that. Okay, that's the nicest thing ever. It's going to go on my business card. <laughs> well, I mean, so... <laughs> Deuce thinks I'm a writer. <laughs> so <laughs> I would watch... So last year, we went on a road trip, you and I, to yeah. Dad 2.0. We drove from Salt Lake City to San Diego. And you were one of the only people who knew that I was about to go into treatment, by the way. Right. Yeah, I, sh- I shared with Kelly that um, what I was going th- about to go through. And I remember (laughs) like we stopped in Vegas on the way down and you would compose Facebook posts in like 10 minutes that would have taken me like four days to write (laughs) and I was like you just fucking wrote that holy shit (laughs) and I I need to explain the significance of like your of, of our bond here because um Back in 2014, I was speaking on a keynote panel at Mom 2.0 with uh, five different other people about using our voices for the greater good. And <laughs> Laura Mays, um, before the panel, stood up and said, um, I'm going to have uh, invite someone on stage to read um, what I think is the most important component to this discussion. And Kelly got up on stage and read a blog post she had written calling out everybody in the room for not blogging about racism. And she's like, I see you hashtagging LGBTQ. I see you hashtagging breastfeeding. I see you hashtagging feminism. Why are you not talking about race? And Mm -hmm. it was almost like she was saying, Heather Armstrong, Heather Armstrong, Heather Armstrong. (laughs) And I got so red in the face. And like I kept sinking lower and lower and lower in my seat. And afterwards, I approached you and I said, I feel like you were talking directly at me because I have not broached that subject once on my website. I was Mm -hmm. scared to. And you and I remember the words. I was like, I 
people are going to come at me and saying, why, what the fuck do you have to say about this? And you looked at me and you said, wouldn't have you ever done anything right, Heather? <laughs> <laughs> you and, stay in some shit, girl. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you're right. I mean, people are going to call me out on anything that I do anyway. And she's like, you were like, your voice is really important about this. And it was your encouragement that made me. And then you were the one who recommended now my favorite book, uh, The Warmth of Other Suns, that yeah. having and my parents having grown up in Jim Crow South, like it was you transformed my life. I mean, there is there's no getting around that. I I can recall that moment with some um, pinpoint clarity, Heather, mm-hmm. um, mostly because, uh, well, number one, it was really it was a moment when. God bless Laura Mays, who was like, you can read anything you want. And I was like, oh, I'm about to hurt your feelings then. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to be nice. <laughs> and I showed it to her and she just went, "Ooh, okay, <laughs> go for it. And um, it was it was really around, uh, you know, we were having this sort of national conversation about race without really having a national conversation about race, mm-hmm. which is, you know, technically what we do in this country is we're always trying to identify the problem without ever going, and I think it might be racism. Um, And I could have heard a pin drop in that room and I knew I was stepping on toes and we were, it was really around Trayvon Martin. Like, and Mm -hmm. I kept thinking of his mother, Sabrina Fulton and how, how so many blog posts always talked about this camaraderie and this community of moms who found this um, wonderful place where they could share themselves, their full selves, uh, all of the complications about being a mother. And I thought, here's a mother whose child was shot and killed in the most horrific manner. It's on tape. It's become a national issue. And not one of these moms is saying, oh, my God, her child is dead. And that is horrible. And so um, I remember getting off that stage thinking, well, I remember reading it and thinking, oh, damn it, I can't hear anything out there in the crowd. Like, I can't read this at all. Shit. You know, you, when, and you go, oh, God, what's happening out there? What was happening out there, Heather? I don't know. Oh, all of us were called out. And all of us realized that we had been called out and that we were properly called out. Like, we were, we were guilty of this. We knew it. And I like you rocked the room, like the whole room was shook, like it, that, like you could feel the walls vibrating with everybody in the room going, she's talking to me. She's talking mm. to me. Yeah. Well, when you can't read your audience, you just get more and more. Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> they are either going to boo me off this stage or I don't like that was really a, the only option that I was considering at the time. I'm like, they're going to be really mad about this. And, um, and I finished and, um, it was a standing ovation and Mm -hmm. I was just like, Oh, wait, I think I just picked a scab. Yeah. It was a transforming moment. I think for the whole mommy blogging landscape, you know, Karen Walrond, who we just love, um, Mm -hmm. said to me when I was coming off the stage, she was actually standing up. I remember she was standing, but she was also walking towards me which is great because I kept thinking now I'm going to fall down because <laughs> like, I can't believe what is, what is transpiring in this room. And she just, she hugged me immediately and said, I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. It, it this was what needed to be said. And you said it. 
And that's when I, I was, it's funny because then I went to sit at the table that you were sitting at because you had just gotten done speaking and your jaw was just like, uh, your, your mouth was open. I remember at the time. And I remember somebody else sitting at the table, um, Meredith who turned around and she said to me, who are you? <laughs> Which <laughs> Felt a little bit like, Oh, I don't know what to say now. And I think I, that's when I started saying, I'm a troublemaker. I'm mm-hmm. a tr- I, that's what I do. I'm a troublemaker. But, you know, Karen has also said in many ways, and John, I don't know if you've, you've seen a picture of me, um, but yeah. I'm a very light-skinned black woman. And so I, um, Karen always says that I'm everyone's safe black person because they feel like they can ask me questions and talk to me. And I, I think that a lot of that comes out from, A, yes, sure, my experiences. My mom is white. My dad is black. I got to watch this world. But my mother very clearly said to me and my sisters when we were very young, I need to raise you like black girls because the world's going to see you as black women. Like you, you're not going to be able to hide. You are not going to be able to infiltrate and, and belong to a society that they will not accept you. So I need to treat you like, like black girls. Um, and then the other part was just being in education and then being able to watch it. But there are so many people who miss it about me. They think that I'm something. They think that I'm ethnic. They think that I'm exotic looking. And you can't see me, but I'm putting quotation marks around that because it makes me sick to hear that. But I, I've, I've met a lot of people in my educational career who have just revealed their racism to me because they don't know what I am. Mm-hmm. And how many years did you spend as an administrator? Ten years as an Ten administrator. Years. Wow. Yeah. My first year as an administrator is when I was thinking, oh, my God, this is so stupid of me. I can't believe I decided to do this. Um, I had a, a teacher bring a student over to my office, and she was so mad already. She was just on 10. Uh, which, by the way, don't do that, teachers. <laughs> do not let them see you get that pissed. Like, keep it together. And um, as she's yelling at this kid, and he's, she's telling me all the things he's doing in the classroom. He's, he happens to be a black boy. And I'm looking at him, and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, how do I navigate this? Like, how do I? She's having a meltdown, and he's kind of smirking because he's like, ha ha, I got you. Um, and I, I learned, obviously, I should have asked him to leave. I should have said just step out of my office for a minute. And I should have taken all her anger on, but it happened the way it happened. And so I looked at him and said, Hey, is this accurate? What she's telling me? He's like, yeah, that's accurate. That's not the problem. I'm like, Oh, what's the problem? He goes, we're in here because every time I get in trouble in her class, she's always spreading my business to the streets. And she Hmm. did not know what he meant by that. So I translated because that's also what you do as a person of color, as a black person. (laughs) I said, he's upset because you're obviously telling the whole class why he's in trouble. And I said to him, you know, what's the difference between what that looks like and what other students? He said, well, when she, when a white kid gets in trouble, she goes over and kneels down next to them and she whispers and touches them on their arm and says, can I get you some help? Is there something you don't understand or what, what's going on with you today? And that was a profound moment for me mm-hmm. to hear a, a 14 year old black boy articulate systemic racism in one instance. That's exactly how the system works. So this would have been in 2005, I think. Wow. Yeah. You have so many similar stories like that, that you've told me over the years. Yes. Too many. A lot. (laughs) In, In a situation like that though, what happens a month or two months or three months down the road? I mean, do you see things change or does it just stay exactly the same? It stays exactly the same. 
yeah, they, they don't, there's no change. Um, the, the teachers of what I found is that they didn't like it. They, they thought that I was siding with the kids, which, you know, is like part of my fucking job, right? Like who, I'm here to advocate for education that includes teachers and students, and then also parents and support staff and community people. And, um, in trying to say, hey, you know, this is actually, this is a bias situation we need to talk about. They didn't want to talk about that. Then I just became the bad guy at all times. Mm-hmm. And they would transfer you to another school and then to another school? Yes. Yes. Just keep on moving me. And by the last one, that's when I said, and in 2015, I went, that's, I'm done. I'm done. You don't want to have these conversations and um, I can't do this work alone. And I think that it was, it was, incredibly damaging to my own emotional and mental state. And I, I got out to save my life, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And that's when you started being black at school? Yes, yes. And I know that's a provocative name. And I did that shit on purpose. <laughs> um, I will not lie about that. I know, I know that uh, people hear it and go, Oh, what? But here's the deal. It says everything you need to say. I'm advocating for black students in school systems. And there's there's a plethora of research and data out there that tells you exactly why this is necessary. Yes. And I remember I said something really, really, really stupid to you that I'm really ashamed of in that conversation after you read your piece. We, we live in a predominantly like 99%, 99.9% white state and um there was a black kid in lita's second grade class and she was trying to she's like she couldn't remember his name and she was trying to like describe him to me and she didn't describe his skin color and i told you this and i was like she doesn't see she's she 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 didn't use his skin color to describe him to me even though he's the only black kid at her school and Mm -hmm. There's this notion among white people who think, well, if I teach my kids not to see color, then they won't be racist. (laughs) And that's not what you should do. No. Kids are not colorblind. Like, no one's colorblind. Kids at, at age, before age one, no color. And by age two, are distinguishing and, and seeing the differences in how people are treated. So mm-hmm. we, we just totally lie to ourselves when we do that. They see it. And, and quite frankly, I, I would like, go ahead, see my color. Because that tells you things about me that I don't have to necessarily verbalize. I see things about white people and I go, okay, I know some things about you already. Which, yeah, that's part of my bias. That's how I got shaped as well. And, and part of how everybody gets shaped in how we relate to one another. We've already got that. We should just, we should just admit it so that we can move on. Mm-hmm. They notice it. I mean, when my son was two and a half, I was working mm-hmm. in retail. And I live, this particular area of Illinois, Kelly, is, is predominantly, well, it's predominantly white um, and then also Hispanic. Mm-hmm. And um, so there are very, very, very few black people in this area. But I was working in retail, and there was there was one gentleman at the store who was black. His name was Robert. And my my girlfriend at the time and my son came to pick me up, and I got in the car, and he said right away he asked me, he said, "Who's the brown guy?" Mm-hmm. And I didn't I didn't really process what he was talking about because I didn't for one I didn't really think he was paying attention, but he 
Robert had opened the door for me and he saw him. And it occurred to me that in his two and a half years, I honestly don't know how many black people he'd seen. But that was right. like the first thing he picked up on was the color difference. Right. They, so you I know, feel like to teach kids to not see color is to really just whitewash everything, essentially. Oh, yeah. Even, you know, so my granddaughter, um, who I remember when she saw my father for the first time, who's black, there was there was definitely, I could see the wheels turning in her head. <laughs> like, this might be the darkest person that I've seen lately. Like, the first time she met him. I, you could just see it. They notice it. They they even say, you know, re, they do all this research and they show babies of different races. They show them pictures of the person of their race, so their family and, and all of the people that they're usually associated with. And they show them a picture of a person of a different color and babies noticeably shift and wiggle and move around. And there's a, they know that their brains are going, this is new. I need to process. Mm-hmm. Which is why I think it's really important for um, parents like John and I, whose children are literally confined to spaces where everybody looks ex- exactly the same, to expose them to these conversations and to these issues and to get them involved in order for them to enact policy and enact behaviors as they grow older that are better than what we have, what, what has come before them. Yeah. So how do you do that? How do you do that? Right. What does that look like? (laughs) Exactly. So I guess that transitions into this discussion about the recent Parkland shooting. Well, first of all, I have a very, I have have a 14 year old who pushes herself so hard during the week that on the weekends she doesn't want to do anything. Yeah. um, Anything at all. Like she literally stays in her pajamas for two straight days and I was like, we're going to a march on Saturday and you need to put on some clothes and we're going to make some signs and we're going to march for this. This is important. So I took my kids to, uh, I think, I think about 15,000 people turned out in Salt Lake City for the march. Yeah. Both of my kids were, you know, a a bit awestruck by the whole scene of it. Um, And that gets in, in. Gun violence, I mean, we, I've talked, John and I have talked quite a bit about how anti-gun I am. And we, we, we won't even get into the whole Dana Lesh situation. Oh, no, no, no. If anybody Chance. listening, if anybody listening doesn't know, Dana Lesh was a mommy blogger. She started out as a mommy blogger. And uh, both Kelly and I know Dana personally. I was on her show once. Oh my God! What? I traveled. I traveled to St. Louis because it's so close to where I live, and I was uh, there was a weekend um, activity thing down there, and I was on her show. Yeah. No way. Mm-hmm. What did you talk before about she, before she turned into who she is? Uh, I cannot even remember. I mean, it was obviously in the p- parental vein, you know, mm-hmm. um, but it was not. It is not who she is now. It is, you know, she's. She's a corporate sponsored spokesperson yeah. now. And, mm-hmm. um, but you know what? We live in a corporate sponsored country. So <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's true. Yeah. Right. Like we, we don't even know our, our origins. Like we have a mythology about this country that mm-hmm. um, is so, so wrong. And so, and we've continued to tell it over and over. And, and people like her continue to believe it. 
And um, because it's profitable, she she'll stay in that she'll stay in that uh, lane. I love that. There is a mythology about the history of this country. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's the perfect word. I don't really think we know what it is. Um, I've made so this year I've made a concerted effort to um, diversify my own bookshelves. I spend so much time diversifying everyone else's like you just (laughs) mentioned at the beginning, like, thank you for this title. And I look at my own bookshelves and I go, you know what, I have a lot of black women uh, writers that I've identified on my bookshelves. And like, how can I how can I change that up? How can I get out of this binary? of thinking about race in the United States as black and white, even though that's the prevalent thought, right? Mm-hmm. And so this year, I'm committed to listening to indigenous voices. And once you start following on Twitter, you know, one person, an indigenous person, you know how you get recommendations for others. Yes. And so one day I went through and I think I started, I think I have like 100 voices that I'm listening to now. And I'm being very mindful about staying out of those conversations because I think that there's such a thing as you can have intra- relationships with people and then uh like it in a community so I, I sometimes see it in the black community we're having a conversation about issues that affect the black community and there are black people talking about it and then you have someone come in and you know you can see people just go mm, no get out <laughs> like i know this is twitter but we were having this conversation amongst us and uh, i'm watching indigenous voices and feeling very much like i'm not a part of that community but i have so much to learn Yes. And um, listening to those voices has made me sort of come up with that origin mythology about what we know in this country. But I also know, you know, so many of our textbooks, I know this as an educator, uh, continue to talk about indigenous American Indians in the past tense, as if they're no more, Mm -hmm. which is so (laughs) untrue. But uh I, it's it's a challenge to myself, and it's so hard not to get involved with those conversations. But I'm learning a lot about the way they talk about this country is very different from any way that I've ever ever heard. Yes, that's it's interesting that you would say that because the way the algorithm is working on Facebook and Twitter, most of what I read is is from Black people. Most of my Twitter feed is Black. And um, I have in a- black Twitter. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome. Black twi- I was talking about black Twitter to somebody and someone was like, what? I was like, oh, black. Tw- oh, you don't know what black Twitter is. Sorry. Um, and I, 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 I've learned so much just by listening and reading and following all of the links and following all of the, you know, the stories that are being written. And I also follow uh, Michael Ian Black. Yeah. He was going off about healing. He's like, I want to repeal the Second Amendment. He's like, you know, people of color are disproportionately affected by gun violence. And he's like, and and he actually brought up indigenous people. And someone challenged him and said, how how dare you say that? And then he said, Mm -hmm. let's ask. Let's ask indigenous people how they have been affected by gun violence. And he gave them this huge platform. And they were like... 300 comments from all of these indigenous people talking about the gun violence in their lives. Mm. And it was so fascinating to read. And I think I'm going to do what you're doing and, and start following the, more of those voices. You learn so much by just listening. <laughs> yeah. I, well, you know, I do that. I, I didn't think that that's what I was doing, but I guess I was, I was, I did that with um, the LGBTQ community. Yeah. And um, I'm trying to learn about transgender. I'm trying to learn about how people use pronouns. And I'm like, I don't know anything. So let me just sit here and listen. Let me just shut up 
and listen to you talk about your own experiences. So I, I feel like we can do that in so many communities. I was I actually did that with the disabled community. Um, they yes. were one of the reasons that I didn't want to attend the, the Women's March because they felt so uh, ostracized. And, um, and so I started following all of these disabled twiddlers, twitterers. It's not entirely inaccurate. That's true, John. But... And you don't like this woman was like, hey, I'm, I'm tired of going. I can't go see a movie because there are no subtitles. I can't go to a movie theater, you know, and you're uh, like, yeah. fuck. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Also, just out of the blue, today is my Twitter birthday. Is it really? Ten years. No way. Yeah. I've been spouting shit for ten years. Happy tweeting. <laughs> Thank you. And you, you become you become more active on Twitter lately, haven't you? Yes. Um, I, I, I got less active on Facebook. Um, <laughs> it's kind of, it's interesting because I sh- overshare on Facebook and I was getting to a part in my life where I didn't feel like sharing everything and Twitter's so much easier. I'm like, yeah, you can, I, I mean, you can overshare there. You absolutely can, but it's, uh, as a platform, it made more sense for me to do some advocacy over there. And uh, the more I was sort of staying away from it, the more I would see people tagging me and be like, Kelly, Kelly, can we ask you a question? I'm like, why am I not using this um, Mm -hmm. in a better way? I think the Educolor community, uh, which is a hashtag that I follow, as well as um, uh, the hip hop um, pedagogy uh, by um, Dr. Christopher Emden are two places where I I get the most out of watching and, and talking and discussing about important things in education and what we should be doing um, to dismantle racism in education. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quick story. You, did you text me this? I don't know if you texted me. You were like, do you know who this guy named Will Butler is? (laughs) I think he's in a band called Arcade Fire. And I was like, What? What are you oh, talking yeah, yeah, about? Yeah, you texted me about that too. Because <laughs> <laughs> you went, one of your tweets went viral, and he like followed you because he's really politi- yeah. politically active. And I was like, "What? Arcade Fire is following you?" <laughs> I know. And then I'm like, I should probably listen to their music. I don't even know what they sing. <laughs> I did, Will Butler. I did. I'm listening now. It's funny because my children are not like they're never. I'm sure your maybe your kids do the same thing, Heather, but they're never impressed with anything I do online. And so I, um, I try. I'm like, look how cool this is. But they were recently most impressed that that 
um, that viral tweet I had about Philandale Castile um, was retweeted by Mark Ruffalo. And they were like, the Hulk, mom? The Hulk? Oh, was it so, really? Yeah, I, I got major points with my sons on that one. Wow. And then it fell off. It's over. It's done with. <laughs> <laughs> He's also like really politically active. I think what, what Twitter does, it sort of levels this playing field between you and celebrities or musicians or people that you look up to that are famous, right? And then... Mm-hmm. And but it also the downside is that you can find that someone that you've liked for a really long time has some super shitty opinions. Oh <laughs> and yeah, like, and then you're like, oh, I can't follow you. I can't even like anything. You're so stupid. I can't. I'm done. A, a trans um, Twitterer uh, was went off about J.K. Rowling the other day about Ooh. the fact that she has promoted oh. anti-trans trans yep. literature. Oh. Okay, so let's bring that back around to Indigenous Voices. They yeah. have called out J.K. Rowling for a very long time. Have they and really? Yeah, and I didn't know this until I started following their voices. And she has largely ignored them. So, yeah, that's a great example of someone who... I mean, she, she does look good on paper. And most mm-hmm. people... And she does talk about a lot of important things. But she also participates in, in being complicit and continuing to make these voices be marginalized voices. Yeah. Like at some point you have to go, what exactly am I using my platform for? So I like what you said about Michael Ian Black, who basically what he did was he passed the microphone. Mm-hmm. Like just pass your microphone. If you have nothing to say about this, because it's not your community, give a microphone to someone who needs it and let them use your platform. That's how you use your privilege. Yeah. Which bring it back to Parkland. <laughs> I know you wanted to talk about this. And I've been reading quite a bit of valid criticisms about what's been going on in terms of the support that they have received and the lack of support that people of color have received in terms of gun violence. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, a couple of things about that. One, I've actually tried to reach out to a couple of the Parkland kids on different occasions and even have asked people, do you know how I can get in touch with them? Because I really, I want to help. I really do want to help. I want to help them avoid some pitfalls that regardless of how wonderful they have been, they're still falling into. Um, And I think, I think it's, it must be hard to be them right now because here they have this, this platform that's in many ways been thrust upon them. I mean, within days they were verified, right? Yeah. Days they were verified. Their, their, their followers began to go up and I just kept thinking, okay, but they're kids still. And I, I'm totally validating all of the um, things that are coming out of them, but I also feel like they still need some help in informing things. I don't want to, I don't want to tell you what to do, but we, we really can't, um, we really can't just leave them hanging out there. Right. So, you know, for instance, they just wrote a, a manifesto in the guardian. Did you happen to read this? I didn't. Um, and it has a couple of things in there. Apparently it was in their school newspaper and then the guardian republished it. And I'm sort of gobsmacked that no one from the guardian saw some really glaring pieces of this. Uh, much of it was great, but one of the things that they think that should be changed are, are privacy laws to allow mental health care providers to communicate with law enforcement and as a black woman, I'm screaming, no, 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 that is, that is not, I mean, the number of black people with mental health issues I know who their communities are very clear about, we do not call law enforcement because when we do, 
they kill us. Mm-hmm. Um, that that's a huge glaring piece, and I know that they're that the Parkland students are talking about that their methods are inspired by Black Lives Matter, but I you cannot possibly tie police into this. You you do not want cops to be therapists. They they need more training in their own right, um, but they are not to be they are not to be mental health professionals. No. And when you consider the history, and this is where I feel like this is just fundamental history that they're missing through no fault of their own. Um, and even perhaps through no fault of their, their, their teachers who may or may not have, have done lessons with the lens of, you know, anti-racism. Um, but we don't need to survey the mentally ill because they're already criminalized and they lack services already. So that was a huge huge error, I think, that that's why I was just like, I would really like to reach out to you and just provide some context for some of the things that you're doing. Now, like, again, on paper, they do look really good, right? They did a fantastic job with the march. Um, they made sure that they had lots of different voices. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're constantly um, talking about intersections, but I still, I still think there's some missing pieces and um, I, we need to help them. We need we need to help them as they're shaping this, right? But, you know, I guess what it comes down to is that we cannot reduce the the gun violence debate at the expense of mental health struggles for people of color, right? Well, I we actually talked about when the shooting happened the morning uh, that we recorded. There was what a, a forensic psychologist was on NPR talking about. Uh, he had studied the guy the. Um, the Aurora, Colorado shooter, the theater shooter. Mm -hmm. He had studied him for many, many years. And he said, most people with mental health issues don't commit gun violence. He said, you need to be far more worried about the domestic abuser or the angry coworker or the disgruntled person next door, far, far more than someone who has depression or anxiety. And I I talked about the fact that I've worked with um, mental health organizations who, whenever a shooting happens, they're like, here we go again. Here we go again. They're going to they're going to call them mentally ill. Right. It's such a stigma. And when you when you combine that with a, a, a person of color in law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And right. And ask indigenous people how that's working out for them right now. Mm-hmm. Like, ask them about Colton Bushy. Like they they have the same exact issues that are going on that, that don't get highlighted. Um, it's just we do this thing where we we tie mental health to to pathological violence when what we're actually talking about is entitlement. Mm-hmm. And and what I continue to say to people is, I appreciate that we are also focusing on the violence that is happening in communities of color, which happen for a lot of other complicated reasons. You know, white kids are afraid of being shot in school, but black and brown children are afraid of being shot on their way to school every mm-hmm. single day. And so we have to really look at like, what's the, what's the commonality here? Uh, these are mostly white boys in mostly white communities in, in predominantly white school buildings. Like we're talking entitlement. We're talking bias. We're talking racism um, because there's always this, they consistently give in to this assumption of good intentions. Like we didn't know he was going to do this last night. I was at dinner with the kids who organized the March here in Springfield. And I found out that one of the girls has a brother. She's from a family who's very conservative, very uh, pro-gun. And her younger brother got an AR-15 for a Christmas present. 
Oh my god. It in like the Midwest, <laughs> I'm I'm just sitting here thinking, my God, that means I know someone with an AR fifteen who's who's a white boy. Like that's a really scary thought that I don't think everyone is like giving a, a, enough credence to. Right. Right. So like when I, even when I think about issues of violence as a, as a black girl growing up in a black neighborhood in Chicago, predominantly black neighborhood, um, those are not the things that scare me. Like the last time somebody called me a bitch, it was a white guy. Last Mm -hmm. time, you know, someone in a bar threw a beer bottle at my head is a white guy. Like most of the violence I know has come from white men. And we're st- we just don't want to talk about that. We're going to choose every other issue to talk about, but that one. We're talking about you, John. <laughs> I, I'm just listening. I'm not like <laughs> spacing out here, but I'm giving, no, giving you the platform. John readily admits. I'm not. That. I'm not going to defend white men. I'm the last person that's going to yeah. defend white men. Yeah. I mean, there's you have no ground to stand on when you when you try to take that stance. Yeah. You just don't. And to acknowledge that white men are the problem does not mean that every single white man is a problem. And that's where people get lost. But white men are predominantly the issue. Right. I was listening to uh, or watching Bree Newsom, you know, Bree Newsom, who took yes. down the Confederate flag. Uh, yeah. And this morning, I knew she would have some things to say about the um, no charges and the death of Alton Sterling. And she did. And she talked about how our nation has had an uprising in every major American city from 2014 to 2017. Mm-hmm. Starting in 2014, we had Ferguson, we had St. Louis, then we had Baltimore, then we had Charlotte, then we had St. Louis again. St. Louis has some problems. Oh, Lord. <laughs> St. Louis is an, um, it's close enough to me that I've visited enough. My oldest daughter went to college there. Uh, the number one question you get asked from anyone in St. Louis is, where did you go to high school? And I feel like that's very telling about um, how you identify because Mm. um, schools are a way for all of us to, um, it, it, schools are a way for us to talk about racism, quite frankly. Yes. (laughs) Right. Like schools are, that's kind of where it's at. And if you're going to talk about racism in schools, you really have to start then overlaying that with where people live and with housing segregation. And it's almost as if you could take a map anywhere in the United States, you take a, take a map of that place and you identify like the food deserts and you identify places where there is no access to healthcare and mental health care. Um, you identify places that have no access to drug treatment, where schools have been closed, where there's no economic opportunity, where there's, a lack of access to any quality education. And then you go, you know what those places have in common? Um, excessive violence. <laughs> huh. Yeah. Like, oh, what? how about we talk about that? One of, my, one of my favorite lines from this movie called The Interrupters, which is set in Chicago. So, John, if you haven't seen this, I think it's on Netflix still. And it's, um, it's about this group that goes in and really interrupts um, the gang violence that's happening in different areas. And most of the interrupters are former gang members themselves. And they had this town hall and the mayor came out and they were talking about all the things that we need to be doing in this community because there's all this violence. And this older man stood up and he said, you know, you always come in here and you talk to us about violence and you continue to say this black on black crime, which 
by the way, is just, this is my own side note, total bullshit because everybody has their own crime. There's white on white crime. It is at the same exact level. It says black on black, Latino on Latino. It's all the same. Um, but you never come in here and talk about jobs. You never come in here and talk about having ripped our communities apart because you, you, you put a highway in the middle of it. You never come in here and talk about the, the infrastructure that you helped to tear down that has created these al- alternate um, economics, mm-hmm. right? Like there's an alternate economy in poor black and brown na- communities, but you only talk about what it is we're doing that's, that's violence, but not that we don't have food or me- healthcare or a million other things. It's almost like the there's there's a fundamental like the chicken comes before the egg or does the egg come before the chicken? And yeah. a lot of white people <laughs> believe it one way. <laughs> like, well, you, you your neighborhoods are violent and that's why all of this is happening. And it's like, well, no, wait a minute. Why would we be so violent? Why would so much violence happen in these places when people right. aren't getting the services that they need, when people are starving? Right. Or maybe, you know, because you spend all your time going in communities like that and then locking them up, Mm -hmm. like locking up black and brown men and women. And then and then what do we do? Then we turn around and go, well, you know, the problem is you don't have fathers. They're in fucking jail. Like you can't have it both ways. Like, sorry, that was my like. I no. have to have one outburst. No, that's... I told you. I told you that we get, the sky's the limit here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, especially with with issues of just putting black people in jail or criminalizing them. That's that is the other reason why I had to get out and try to do some advocacy work for black children because of the way I watched them be criminalized. It is the fault of school systems that black and brown children are criminalized. The, pr- mm-hmm. the school to prison pipeline, that's our fault. We did that. We invited school resource officers in and then we turned over all of our discipline to them and that it is fucking outrageous the way the way that continues to happen. And again, let, let's just bring it back to the Parkland kids who also see that as, you have to think about this, you know, white people, you assume that the police are there to help you. That is not true for anyone else on the margins. Right. The, the assumption is not that you're here to help us. Uh, that's why there's a, a lack of even, you know, contacting police for different issues. And, and that's why communities of color will often try to work on those issues themselves and not go outside. Um, so for them to suggest that we need more school resource officers, more police and more cops in buildings, I'm like, no, I want them out. I want I want psychologists, I want social workers, I want community people who can help make connections uh, for families that need it. Uh, I want I want so much more than cops in a building. That's the wrong way to go. It's such the wrong. I mean, we're militarizing. We're militarizing school systems. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I was so I was working with a school in Indianapolis, and they'd said something. Now I don't. Elementary kids were not where I did most of my work. I did middle and high school, but um, a, a black teacher came up to me during the break, and she said, "So I'm having a problem with." something that we've just instituted. We've just put lines down the hallway with tape. And so now the kids have to stay within those lines. And we're asking the the elementary students to walk with their hands behind their back and what they call bubbles in your mouth, because elementary kids will sort of blow their cheeks out. But that that's just to keep them quiet. 
And uh, she said, am I on the right track thinking that this feels like a prison? And I said, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> You're asking them to be in a even more confined space. Like you can't, like if you're in second grade, when I was in second grade, I would have gone to the office and skipped the whole entire way. That's what second graders do. And we're right. asking them to walk in a line with their hands behind their back, almost like they're, they're handcuffed mm -hmm. and no talking. Like the environments that we're creating in school buildings, um, they may not always look like uh, they may not look like the prison that you have in your mind, but that, that that's a definitely a carceral state that we're creating in a school when we do that. And I, I really want all of our children to get to behave like children in school. I think it's so important f for especially our listeners to, ha to have you come and say this because of all the experience that you have with this very specific thing what you have seen, what you have witnessed over and over and over and over again. I, w I wish I could have worked in, in, in places where students of color were just assumed to be brilliant and valuable and, and uh, have this yearning for knowledge of who they are historically. I wish, I wish so much that could have been what it was, but I, what helped me sort of not feel so alone. And, and this is where I do most of my work with administrators and teachers of color who ask for my help is you feel like such an Island and like, you're the only one who's noticing these things. And you, you try very hard to say, you guys see this too, right? <laughs> like you, 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 you see this too. And so a lot of what I end up doing is sharing a lot of research and data with them that says, okay, this is exactly what you're seeing. And this is what the research tells us about what you're seeing. We, we've got research out the wazoo that tells us what we do in, that's wrong in schools. What we don't have is anybody implementing programs to like mm -hmm. fix it on a national scale. Like you've got these pockets of people who are doing these fantastic things in their buildings, but I wish we could make that much more universal. Um, and so one of the things that I share with, with a lot of people is that a lot of our research talks about when, when white kids get in trouble in school, it's usually for things that you can see. Um, uh, having a tantrum or throwing a book across the room or, you know, reaching out and slapping another kid. And students of color often get in trouble and referred to the office for things you can't see. Having an attitude or being insubordinate or being disrespectful. And all that mm. is totally subjective, right? That's up to the person writing that referral to say, well, you rolled your eyes at me. That's disrespectful. Or you, you know, Mm -hmm. And that's not to say that we can't correct that behavior. Cause I know I've had a lot of white teachers say, I cannot believe you let that happen. I'm like, I'm building a relationship with this kid. So if they need to call me a bitch to save face in front of their friends and I need to have a conversation with them about that, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to write them up for calling me a bitch. That is not the worst thing I've been called in school <laughs> or life. It's just not. <laughs> and usually what, what teachers will tell me is they'll, yeah, I, this was an instance where I, I did in front of a couple of other teachers. I had the a student call me a bitch, but here's the deal. I was asking him to go back into the classroom because everyone is out because our bell system was off. So there was this chaos in the hallways and kids were just, we had a lot of substitutes in the building and the kids were totally, they were freshmen. They were taking advantage of all of the subs who were like, Oh, I guess that's the bell. And so we're rushing up there to get them in the classroom and I'm telling kids left and right, you know, get back in class, get back in class. And this one, he, I said, get back in class, Barry. And he's like, all right. 
And then he turns around and says, bitch, he tries to say it under his breath, but of course I hear him. And I had three white teachers on me instantly going, oh, you have got to stop that. You have got to call him out in the middle of the hall. You have got to. And I'm like, hey, look at him. He's actually doing what I asked him to do. He went back in the classroom. I'll talk to him (laughs) later. Like, I'll get to that. But there's this sense of emergency around you have got to stop that behavior. And that is, that's a horrible way that we um, discipline and, and give out consequences to black children. And it actually makes everything worse. You're coming at it through such an empathic way of, of, um, of treating children. It's like developing the relationship with them, like how desperately they, they want to trust and want to be able to confide and feel less alone. Yeah. And giving them some humanity while they do it. Also, like a a 15, 14 year old calling me a bitch, totally developmentally appropriate. Like (laughs) I was 14 once, right? It's like (laughs) that is actually developmentally appropriate because they don't know how to express themselves. Now, what's wrong with me sitting down with Barry later on and saying, which is exactly what I did. I just saw him in the hallway, called him over. I'm like, hey, Barry, calling me a bitch ain't gonna work for me. Like, that's not, that's not what we're going to do. And immediately he went, oh, you know what? I'm sorry. You're right. I was just, you know, standing in my boys and I wanted to, and I'm like, no, I get it. I get it. And what really bothers me is that I could not get the other adults in the room to see that, that I needed to protect my relationship with Barry. Right. And I needed Barry to, to, he needed to understand that he needed to grow and move through that. And, um, totally worked out because a couple of years later I was actually going to my car and I saw a bunch of kids and um, they were planning on jumping me. And guess who was in the group? Barry. And Barry, <laughs> he stopped the whole thing from happening. He's like, uh-uh, y'all ain't messing with her. Really? Like, yeah. Yeah. Which I know that doesn't happen all the time. Right. But it, it, to me, it was just like, oh my gosh, had I not built that relationship with that kid, had, had I not sat and talked to him and allowed him to, process what he did and apologize for it. I don't know what would have happened to me. That's incredible. People need their humanity. Where um, we can find you at beingblackatschool.com. Dot org. Org. Dot org. Dot org. Dot org. And online on Twitter and Facebook. What's the, uh, what's the handle? Mocha mama. <laughs> I'm never going to get rid of that. Uh, <laughs> I kind of like it. It's uh, it fits in so many ways. It's the coffee. It's the color of my skin. Mochamama.com. We're gonna put a link up to everything on the, all of our um, on the web page and on all of our social stuff. If you could tell the people listening any one thing in particular, I'm not gonna put you. I'm gonna put you on the spot like that. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Go for it. Um, what would you want people to know about either the work that you're doing or what needs to change? I would say that what we probably really need is a deep analysis of what's happening in this um, intensely intense time of social unrest. And uh, I would just say two words, restorative justice. Like we, you know, we talk about how people, we want people to get over things is what we want to happen. And we want uh, people of color to forgive all of the things that have happened in this country since its inception. But quite frankly, those things were built. Uh, my friend Robert always says, you know, we have to dismantle racism, but we have to remember that someone mantled it, like it mm-hmm. was built, and um, that there are things that we can do. We, ju- we have to do them in community with one another. This is not easy work. It's all it's all internal, and um, 
we just have to analyze not just how we got here, but how we can restore the justice that so desperately needs to be restored in this country. And uh, we can do that. Like, we're ready for that hard work, so let's get to it. Yeah, and white people, white people are the ones who need to do the bulk. All of it. Yeah, because people of color, we're already here. Like, we've already been doing it. So join us. Your shift is upon you. Clock in. Clock in. I like that. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Really, thank you for, for giving me this time. I really appreciate it. No, I, I think we, we've been talking about having you on for several months, and especially given the last couple of weeks, I was like, let's, let's get Kelly, let's get Kelly. So thank you, and I would encourage our, our, our readers. I keep saying that. All of our readers. <laughs> our viewers. Uh, Say viewers, too. Viewers. Just get it all wrong. The viewers, yeah. Everyone listening today, if you would like to weigh in, please do so. Um, send us your email at stories at manicramblings.com. And you can find us anywhere online at Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at manicramblings. And until next time, restorative justice. Many thanks to Tan Lines for the soundtrack, to Lisa Congdon for the cover art, and to Ryan Coomer for his expertise with the editing stuff. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.